Our first reading is from Genesis 15, 12 to 21. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Our second reading is from 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 25. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. And Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, also carpenters and masons who built David a house. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shamua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ephah, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. 
And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up. Go around to their rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gaza. Our third reading is Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Our Father in heaven, Lord of hosts, the great I am, we pray now that you would help us to tremble at your word, to understand and hear your voice, and to respond to it. In Jesus' name, amen. Good. Well, um, I wonder how you're enjoying the new freedoms of lockdown. Have you been to a shop? Like, not a food shop, but like a real shop. Have you been to a shop? I'm getting one or two nods. Um, I went shopping yesterday, first time in a very long time. Um, uh, and I realized that I've definitely, it was a garden center. I've realized I've definitely lost the art of being able to juggle shopping with parenting. I'm not sure I ever had that art, to be honest, but as, as I was trying to pick out some secateurs and um, Josh was running off down, <laughs> down the aisle, I realized, oh dear, this is harder than I remember it. Um, it did actually remind me of a pre-COVID time, um, probably the last time I went shopping in a normal shop. I was trying to um, put on some trainers uh, in a shoe shop that had a sale, and I heard the weirdest sound while I was lacing them up. Um, it was one of those stores where there's the kind of driving electronic beats. I don't know if they're trying to make you buy things quickly. I don't know why it's there. But, but anyway, this afternoon, the, the slightly annoying electronica was, was pierced by the voice of someone singing loudly, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And then that line was repeated and repeated and repeated. Glory to the newborn king. To my surprise, it was a couple of aisles away from where I was. To my greater surprise, it was my daughter's voice. <laughs> Turns out, in, in the brief moment that I'd taken trying to work out where the laces went, Grace had gone for a wander. She found a, an aisle that she liked the look of and just blasted out one of her favorite carols. The whole sports store was being reminded that Jesus, the king, had now been born. 
More recently, Josh has been doing it in supermarket car parks. His favorite song is Go Tell It on the Mountain. It's the same phenomenon. He's announcing to the masked shoppers of Edinburgh as they park that Jesus the King has arrived. Now, what sort of reactions does that announcement get in our culture? If it's a toddler, a kind of, oh, how sweet, bless them. But now Grace is a bit older, and she started saying things like that at school. That's a bit more awkward. And if we grown-ups start saying things like that at the school gate, or with our friends, or at work, if we start actually saying Jesus is king, the king of the world has arrived, the one who, as, as um, Adam has reminded us, has all authority in this world over all nations, that, that all of us should do what he says, that in the end all of us will stand before him to make a judgment about our lives, well, that becomes a whole lot more awkward. I don't know about you, I think there are two different kinds of negative reaction that I fear getting when I, when I say Jesus is king. Firstly, it's the kind of, well, that's nice for you kind of reaction. Have you had that? Oh, you like to believe in Jesus. Well, good for you. If it gives you hope and strength in a, in a pandemic, if it keeps you going, well, that's just great. But it's definitely not for me. I mean, come on. <laughs> you lived 2,000 years ago, pretty irrelevant to the modern world. It's nice that you've got something to, to believe to get you up. That's one reaction. Nice for you. But there is reaction too, isn't there? It's a bit more militant. It's the how dare you reaction. How dare you suggest that Jesus is right and people who disagree with him are wrong? How dare you claim that Jesus has authority over multiple cultures, multiple nations? How dare you suggest that that kind of religious viewpoint could, could have a voice in the public sphere that maybe should shape policy for everyone? How dare you mention what the Bible says? We don't want your Hark the Heralds here, thank you. You can't say that in public. Now, that's not always said out loud, but we kind of worry it's out there, don't we? And so we self-censor. Do you know what the first thing I thought of when I heard that voice was? Oh, Grace, quiet. <laughs> Can't you save the song till we get back in the car? And we're tempted to do that in conversations as well. Let's just keep talk of Jesus being king tucked away at home or in private. But the Bible, God's word, is not embarrassed about the fact that Jesus is king. In fact, in Romans, at the start of the book of Romans, if you remember all the way back then in our, in our kind of one-year project in Romans, Paul said the announcement that Jesus is Lord is what he's trying to take to all the nations. He wants everyone to hear that. In fact, the, the word gospel kind of gets at that. Gospel originally wasn't a kind of religious term. It wasn't a Christian term. It was just a way of saying great news or big news. It was a kind of news announcement term. So big news, gospel. A new Caesar is on the throne, a new emperor is being crowned. And so with Jesus, the gospel that Christ is Lord is a news announcement for everyone. There's a new king in town, a better king than Caesar, a bigger king than Caesar, a king who will last longer than Caesar. And Jesus being king is such a big category that actually loads of the Old Testament is preparing to get our heads around it. Loads of the Old Testament, Jesus said the Old Testament pointed to him, and loads of it is pointing to him as king. So, for example, we read Psalm 2, and that's, uh, there's lots of psalms like it that speak about God's king, God's chosen king. 
Some too striking, actually. It says that um, given the opportunity, humanity will club together to try and get rid of God's king, to cast off his chains so they can live their way. And that was definitely true when Jesus turned up. Nothing surprises God. But it's not just the Psalms. It's also the history books. So 1 and 2 Samuel and Kings and Chronicles. We see God weaving through the history of his people patterns to prepare the way for Jesus, his Christ. By the way, Jesus' surname, Christ, isn't a surname. It's a title, which means king. It literally means anointed one, Messiah, anointed one. But who's the anointed one? Well, 1 and 2 Samuel, the king. And so, 2 Samuel 5, we're going to watch David, God's chosen king, God's anointed one, at this point in history, and see lessons that prepare the ground for Jesus. If you've been around, if you, if you were here in 1 Samuel, you'll be familiar with this. 1 Samuel showed us that God's chosen king would suffer unjustly. He'd be unjustly treated. He'd be rejected by the authorities of God's people through no fault of his own and experience much suffering because of it. But now we've reached 2 Samuel, and David is on the throne. He's finally on the throne. So now we're going to see a king who is enthroned but still gets resisted by the nations. Rejected, mocked, in fact, by the nations. And yet nevertheless defeats them because God is with him. I'm going to say that again. That's the shape of, of this chapter. God's king is enthroned, resisted, rejected, mocked, but in the end defeats the nations because God is with him. So let's dive in. The heart of our passage is three different nations reacting to um, David, but we're going to start with verses 1 to 5 before we get to the reactions. Uh, Just to remind us, this is where we landed last week, Um, but let me just read from verse 1 so we can pick up the story. Verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. You shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king of Israel. That's a big moment. Like David is finally king of the whole of Israel, both the north and the south, Judah and the northern tribes of Israel. It's a huge moment. We've been waiting for this for ages. It was all the way back in 1 Samuel 15 and 16 when God said that, that David was now his man. He was the chosen one. He was anointed by Samuel. But since then, he's been chased all over the map. Saul's been chasing him. Uh, he's been exiled from the land and from um, uh, kind of the, the throne. Uh, delay after delay, delay after delay, but finally now he's enthroned king. Actually, even if you've just been reading 2 Samuel, it's a relief, because the, the, the previous chapters, chapter 2, 3, 4, have just been chaos, like all sorts of political intrigue, all sorts of backstabbing, and in fact, frontstabbing, uh, literally, all sorts of chaos going on, but finally, God's promise comes true. David is the king of Israel, God's chosen king, and he's enthroned. So that's where our passage starts. God's king is enthroned. And the question is, what, what's the reaction going to be like from the nations around? Hark the herald angels sing, 
glory to the newly enthroned king, now how are you going to respond, nations? Well, three examples of reactions to the new king in town. We've got the Jebusites, uh, verses 6 to 10. They live in Jerusalem, this kind of fortress on the Mount of Zion. Then we've got Hiram of Tyre, verses 11 to 12. And then we'll finally look at the Philistines in verses 17 to 25. So three different reactions from three different nations. It's worth saying, if you are someone kind of looking into Christian things tonight, uh, I'm guessing you wouldn't find yourself in verses 1 to 5, like those of us who are Christians would. As in, you're not coming to God's king and saying, actually, we're with you. Um, We kind of bow the knee to you. We declare allegiance to you. So if you're not in verses 1 to 5, it'd be interesting to think kind of which of these reactions does fit where you are at the moment. The first reaction is the Jebusites. Their reaction to David's enthronement is one of ridicule and mockery. They think to themselves, David is king. Well, who cares? I mean, it's nice for you. It's not going to affect us. Not in the slightest, because we are secure, unshakably secure. We're happy where we are, thank you very much. You don't have the right or the power to impact our world. Keep your kingship to yourself. I wonder if that sounds familiar. But David doesn't keep his rule to himself. Just look at verse 6. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the, the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Now, it's worth filling in a bit of background here. Why is David picking a fight with the Jebusites? And actually, why are they so confident that he's not going to win? Well, we might just think, oh, it must be canny politics. Maybe having united the nation, David wants to find a place that would be good for a capital. You know, pick, pick a strong city on a hill uh, like Jerusalem. Uh, and actually, it's not owned by any tribe in the land at the moment. Um, not the, the, the Judah, Judah tribe or the um, other tribes in the north. So maybe it's going to be good for kind of bringing people together. We might think that if we didn't know the Bible up to this point. You see, there's a lot more going on here. That's why we read Genesis 15. I wonder if you noticed the name that Genesis 15 ended with. Do you notice it? All the way back, hundreds of years before, God made a covenant with Abraham, a binding promise. God told Abraham that the whole land would belong to his descendants. The land that includes the Jebusites. Now that wasn't a land grab. It wasn't just um, uh, kind of uh, expansion for expansion's sake. No, God was judging the idol-worshipping nations in the land. You can see it's a judgment because in verse 16 of Genesis 15, God God says we're going to have to wait until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. This is a judicial punishment, not just um, a land grab. And the Jebusites were supposed to be conquered, but actually nobody could. So in Joshua, they tried. Joshua 15, they failed. The tribe of Benjamin had tried, Judges 1.21, and failed. Now that was because of the sin of Israel, actually. They were being unfaithful to God themselves, so they couldn't complete the job. But you can understand why the Jebusites might be starting to feel a little bit cocky. (laughs) I mean, they'd seen new regimes come and go. 
They'd seen great leaders try and come and attack their fortified city on an impregnable hill, and they were still standing right there in the land in amongst all of God's people. There's no way David can get in here. It doesn't matter who calls him God's king. This is our patch, not his. In fact, they're so confident that they taunt David. Did you, did you see that? The blind and the lame will ward you off. It's just trash talk. It's, it's sledging. It's the ancient equivalent of saying, we could fight you off blindfolded with an arm tied behind our back. Our position is so secure. You can, def- you can declare you're on the throne all you like. You can claim that David is king of this land. It's nice for you, but it won't affect us. Except, verse 7, it did affect them. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. That is, the city of David. See, in the end, Jerusalem ended up named after David, not after these Jebusites. Turned out they were not as impregnable as they thought. It turns out they were tenants on God's patch of earth not the rightful owners. It turned out that God did have the right to issue an eviction order through his king. How did it happen? Well, we get a small amount of detail. David picks up their trash talk. In verse 8, he challenges his army to break into the city defenses via the water shaft. Um, Two things to say about that. Just in case you're reading verse 8 and saying, how on earth can David say this? Like, that's an awful thing to say. I think he is just picking up their language. And this is, by lame and blind, he's talking about the Jebusites because that's the, the, the terms they've used in their taunt. Um, we actually see later in the book that when it comes to an actual lame person, so Mephibosheth, uh, Saul's grandson in chapter 9, David is amazingly kind. But here, he's, he's turning their taunt back on them. And he encourages uh, his, his troops to use the water shaft as a point of weakness in this walled city. We know from excavations that um, there was a spring, the spring of Gihon, and, and the city of Jerusalem was connected to it through a, a series of underwater tunnels. It fits with, with archaeological reality. But actually, interestingly, we're not given loads of detail about the battle. Get that one comment, and then we move on. Verse 9, David lived in the stronghold called it the city of David, and David built up the city. You see, verse 10 is the really important reason. Not the military tactics, but verse 10. David became greater and greater, for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. The Lord was with him. Now, those names for God in verse 10, are, they stress his majestic power. The Lord in capitals is the great I am who I am, the self-sufficient, self-existent God, the God of the Exodus. If you remember how he took on Pharaoh, a superpower of the day in Egypt with all their chariots, and easily won. He won because he's the Lord of hosts. That's literally the Lord of armies, the one who has limitless power, all the angels and armies of heaven, all the power of the creator. And so if it was David plus that God, the Jebusites didn't have a chance, walls or not, mountain fortress or not. If God was for him, who could be against him? And God was for him because he promised hundreds of years beforehand 
that this land would belong to his king. So that's the first reaction, the Jebusites. That's the first bit of our story. But you might be thinking, hang on, hang on. What has that got to do with anything? Like, what's that got to do with Grace singing Christmas carols in a shoe shop? Well, remember, the history of the Old Testament is preparing the ground for Jesus. And particularly, David is showing us what God's chosen king will be like and look like and operate like. And the first thing we're seeing about God's chosen king is that once God has enthroned him, it doesn't do any good to mock him. It doesn't do good to to ridicule him as not really having the power to impinge on our existence. I think it's very tempting to do that with Jesus at this stage of history, because at the moment, you can live without Jesus and feel pretty secure, or at least you could before COVID, kind of getting on fine, well set up, minding our own business. But the reality is, as Adam reminded us and Psalm 2 reminds us, God has promised that the nations belong to him. All of the territory is his inheritance. And so it is a matter of time before he returns to claim his rightful territory. So there is a warning here, I think, a warning not to react to God's king the way the Jebusites do, not to assume that the declaration of God's chosen king is only relevant to other people. No, Jesus is Lord. That kind of core announcement of of the good news is also a kind of a news flash, an urgent warning. Jesus is Lord. Psalm 2 says that the nation's do try and get rid of God's king, rage against him. But 2 Samuel 5 shows us that is a grave error because if God is for him, who can be against him? Who can stand? So that's our first reaction, the Jebusites. Then we get a a real alternative reaction, reaction to Hiram, king of Tyre. Um, Now, In verse 11, I don't want to overstate this, I don't think we're necessarily told that that Hiram at this point becomes a a kind of full-blown believer and follower of David. And though later on in in 2 Samuel, we do find out that he loves him and praises the Lord because of him. So so I think he might be in process. But, But certainly he's a contrast to the Jebusites. They think they can carry on regardless, no need to adjust. But Hiram, king of Tyre, well, he realizes that there's a new fact on the ground. This guy is now king. And so, uh, with a new sheriff in town, a new king in town, he opens up communication lines, he plays tribute, pays homage, seeks his favor. And of course, if David is a force to be reckoned with, that is precisely the right thing to do, isn't it? Psalm 2 ends advising the kings of the earth about how to respond to God's king. From verse 10, Therefore, kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling, kiss the son, that's the king, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, I don't know if Hiram had had read the psalm, whether he knew it, but he he had the point. (laughs) I need to actually pay homage to this king. This is not someone I want to make my enemy. It's wise to get right with him as soon as possible. He's a force to be reckoned with. 
Or actually, the Lord God is the force to be reckoned with. Did you notice that came again, verse 12? David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Again, the point that the Lord, the great I am, the creator God, this promise-keeping God, is backing his chosen king. And so Hiram realizes, I've got to get with the program. That's reaction two. Take refuge in the sun. And of course, when it comes to Jesus, God's greater king, the king who, who we've seen enthroned through his resurrection and ascension, well, the message of Psalm 2 and the message of 2 Samuel 5 rings out to us. Make peace with the sun before it's too late. Wise up, O kings. What about the third reaction? I think this is the most striking reaction, the Philistines. Because it is Psalm 2 in a nutshell. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? You see, the Philistines, they're not like the Jebusites. The Jebusites thought, it's never going to affect us. We can just sit pretty. The Philistines were actually worried about King David. They could see that he might be a threat to to their way of life. And so they go on the attack. Striking that. They they try and stop him in his tracks. Just have a look. Verse 17. And by the way, just to say, if you're wondering why we skipped over David's wives and concubines and you're a bit confused about why that's even in there. We are going to come back to that, okay? So so don't be distracted by verse 13. We'll get back to that in a moment. But verse 17, the third reaction, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. You see, the Philistine approach was to launch a counterattack. They're not so naive as the Jebusites to think, la, 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 you're not going to get us. Just ignore it. No, they recognize, wow, This guy's powerful. We need to stamp him out before it gets carried away, before he's too strong to defeat. And they are pretty determined, because in this last block of the passage, we've actually got two battles. Uh, Verse 17, we've got the start of one, and then verse 22 is the second one. Both times they get absolutely trounced. It's striking, actually, that the Philistines lose, because if you remember 1 Samuel, they're actually better equipped than, than Israel. They've got better weaponry. Um, at the end of 1 Samuel, they defeated Israel. Uh, they're, they're, they, it was a battle with them that was responsible for killing Saul and Jonathan. I mean, they're a serious force at this time. And David, well, he's only just united the nation. Like, he's not exactly battle-hardened or well-drilled. Um, in fact, the author's not arranging things chronologically in this chapter. So this happened before the taking of Jerusalem. So it's not like they, they're kind of um, well-versed in the ways of war at this stage. But what the Philistines didn't factor in is Yahweh, the God of hosts, the Lord of the armies, the I am who I am. Look at how he's described in this first battle as a kind of a bursting dam or a river bursting its banks. Verse 20. Now the Philistines had come out and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hands? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hands. 
And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, listen to this, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. If we want to get a sense of the power that that image conjures up, just, just pick your disaster movie. And there are plenty to choose from, aren't there, in terms of uh, special effects scenes of a, a, a massive wave of water. You go for 2012 or The Day After Tomorrow or San Andreas or Deep Impact or The Wave or Tidal Wave, and there are more. They're just the famous ones. But those extraordinary special effects that just show an unstoppable force just a, a deluge of water pouring across, pouring through a city, just destroying everything in its way, buildings, houses, cars, lorries, boats. I assume there are so many of those films because it is just a shocking image. It's a terrifying thought. And of course, CGI isn't the real world, but we have seen real-life footage of that kind of power in this world the real-life horror of tsunamis, when just nothing can stand in the way, nothing can withstand the sheer power. And 2 Samuel says, that's what it was like this day for the enemies of God's king. They thought they could outmuscle him. They thought that their own gods would protect them. They, they thought that their belief systems, their own intellectual and cultural constructs would protect them against Yahweh. But actually, their gods ended up face down on the floor as they ran for cover. It's the same thing, actually, that happened to the Philistine god Dagon when he was in a one-on-one -on -one with Yahweh in their temple at the start of 1 Samuel. Verse 21, the Philistines left their idols there. And again, this is sobering, but the Bible teaches that what happens in microcosm here with David, God's chosen king, will happen in macrocosm with King Jesus, his ultimate king of the world. Don't take my word for it. Listen to Isaiah, one of God's prophets, speak of a coming day, the day when Jesus returns. Listen to this. This is Isaiah 2. For the Lord of hosts... There's that name again. Has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that's lifted up, and it shall be brought low. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled. The lofty pride of people shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols shall utterly pass away. People shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify, terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made, themselves, made for themselves to worship, to enter the caverns of the rocks, the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty." The testimony of the rest of the Bible is that this kind of picture is a micro-picture 
of the day when Jesus, God's king, returns on the earth. And the kindness of God and the kindness of his king, Jesus, is that he gives us warning. Psalm 2 gives us warning. 2 Samuel 5 gives us warning. Isaiah gives us warning. Jesus Christ himself, with his words, gives us warning. Please do not pick a fight with God's king. Turn to him. Bow the knee before it's too late. That's the great warning. You can't take on God's king and win. And yet, Psalm 2, the nations still rage. Humanity is so resistant to having God's rule over them, God's king rule over them. Some are determined to resist him to their deaths. And so the Philistines, verse 22, they go at him again. Verse 22, they haven't learned the lesson. The Philistines came up again, spread out in the valley of Rephaim. David inquires of the Lord. And then um, verse 25, David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Giza. Different tactics, actually, but the same result, defeats. Same reason, the Lord has gone out before you to strike the army. God is with his king. So then, as we begin to draw to a close, my question for each of us is, is just to sit back and think, where do I fit in the various reactions of chapter 5? I guess for many of us, we're in verses 1 to 5, the, the people united around God's king, submitting to him as our shepherd, uniting to one another as we together follow his lead. But there are many other reactions in our world. There's the mockery of Jebusites. You'll never touch us. You'll never shake our fortress. This world belongs to me. There's Hiram realizing he needs to engage with this king. Or there's the Philistines who will continue to rage because they'd rather be in charge. There's just no way they're going to stand for David telling them what to do. But that approach is doomed because God is with his king. Just before we close, though, I, I do want to tackle kind of where we stand by the end of the chapter. Because in some ways, it looks by the end of the chapter like David is invincible. He's now enthroned over a united Israel. He's now installed in Zion, this kind of fortress city. Uh, he's been victorious over the Jebusites, over the Philistines. It looks like nothing can touch him because God is with him. And in many ways, David in this chapter has been a good king. He, he's followed God's word. Uh, he fulfills the Genesis 15 promises. Um, all through the chapter, he keeps inquiring of the Lord to, to um, what he should do. Very different to Saul in that way. He just did what he thought was best. In lots of ways, David in this chapter is a humble, obedient king. Even in the second Philistine battle, he still inquires of the Lord when he could have just thought, well, I know how to do it now. I'm just going to repeat the plan. So in some ways, through this chapter, David as a king is a kind of breath of fresh air compared to Saul. In some ways, finally, we have a king who's listening to the Lord. Except in the fresh air is the whiff of something rotten. You notice that? It's not that strong. Not yet, anyway. But something is definitely there. Something doesn't smell right. It's the bit I skipped earlier, verses 13 to 16. See, Deuteronomy is really specific. It gives, it gives rules for God's king. And one of the rules is, one of the laws is, they must not acquire many wives. 
He must not be a king like the nation uh, back in the day at this point. Um, it was part of power politics, kind of sexual politics. You, you built your kingdom by making lots of alliances. Um, many, many, that explains the many wives, and I think the many concubines is explained by, well, David's sin. So it turns out in this way, uh, he is going way against God's revealed plan for one man and one woman for life, his plan for marriage. That does not smell right. Something rotten there. And as we see later in 2 Samuel, that will be the issue that proves deadly for David's. You see, no enemy has the power to stop God's king if the Lord of hosts is with him. The only possible warning light on the dashboard is if David himself veers off the road, doesn't drive between the lines of God's word. Because if he does, he'll find that God, the righteous Lord of hosts, won't protect his place on Zion, his holy hill, but will banish David from it. And the original readers knew that's what had happened. That's what we know that's what is going to happen. Stay tuned to see how in the coming weeks. But I want to say that even those warning notes prepare the way for Jesus. You see, even those, those, that, that kind of rotten smell that's in the background of David shows us what a marvelous and matchless king Jesus actually is. Because with him, there's no sniff of sin around him. There's no way in which he's compromised. He is perfectly righteous in all his dealings, in every area. And psalm after psalm after psalm says, the only one who can ascend the hill of the Lord, the only one who can sit on Zion, God's holy place, the only one who can permanently inhabit the city of God as, as God's king, is the one who's truly righteous. That king arrived in Jesus. That's why the angels were so excited to sing Hark the Herald. Jesus obeyed God in every area. With women, with wine, with food, with enemies, even with the cross. He's the righteous one who deserves a permanent place in Zion. And not just the micro-Zion, this, this city on earth, but the heavenly Zion, God's heavenly throne room. And here's the thing, if God was for David, a fallen man, such that no one could stand against him at this point in history, well then God is permanently for King Jesus. The Lord of hosts is with him. Jesus is ruling already from Zion in heaven. He's already enthroned. We effectively, we live between um, verse 5, when God, uh, sorry, verse 5 where God, uh, Jesus has been enthroned and then um, verse 11, once he's taken Zion, he's already installed in the fortress. And so it is unwise to stand against him. Because he will return to claim his territory. And that does mean if you are a follower of Jesus, however weak we feel, however pathetic it sometimes seems to be a Christian in this world, Actually, we are trusting the king who will reign forevermore. Let's pray.